0: Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. This morning we are going to be continuing on in our sermon series, going through the Gospel of Mark, and our passage today is admittedly a bit of a difficult one. As you go to your bulletin and you see what I mean by that, uh, there's two things I want to challenge us with today as we dive into this passage. And the first is that as we deal with passages in the Bible that are that are hard for us to handle or swallow, that we wouldn't just immediately put our hands up and run away from a passage like this, like a certain somebody who might not be preaching this morning. But the second challenge, (laughs) sorry, the second challenge for us and and the more important challenge um, would be that we might be open to the ways that God would be challenging us and uh, changing our G-rated expectations of both who he is and who we are. And so with this ominous warning in mind, let's dive in. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. And from there, he, that's Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Father God, we we sit before you today uh, with a lot of thoughts and feelings running through our heads as we get to a passage like this. Um, And we bring a lot of emotions to us, with us here this morning. God, I pray that you would just meet us wherever we are you would calm our hearts, calm our minds, and that we would just know that we are loved by you. Meet us with grace as we wrestle with you and wrestle with your word and show us more of who you are and don't let us leave here unchanged. I ask that you and your words may increase and that I would decrease and I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, this past summer, the youth group went on a mission trip to Athens, Greece and uh, along with myself, there were uh, leaders Jen Crisp and Kristen Over, and then 13 high schoolers with us, which if you're doing the math there, uh, is a recipe for a little bit of drama and a whole lot of hormones all mixed in <laughs> together. After a few days together, we, we took off and traveled um, to the ancient city of Corinth, which meant that we spent the entire day either riding on a crowded, stinky bus arguing about the Ed Sheeran's career catalog. Or we were walking around the city, and by the end of the day, we were tired, we were sweaty, we were all complaining, and we all kind of hated each other just a little bit. That bus ride back was long, and it was dark, and everyone was arguing and whining and just wanted some alone time, and of course, that's the one thing we couldn't get on a bus. But in the darkness, there was a light of energy, of positivity shining out, so much so that even those high school boys took notice a nickname was given, a legend was born. One of the boys who I won't name so that his mom doesn't kill him later looked at Jen and said, Jen, you a dog. (laughs) Jen wasn't quite sure if that was a compliment or or something she should take offense to and so she asked, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, dogs don't complain. They don't whine. That's what dogs do. Another one piped up and said, yeah, that's right. Jen, you've always got our back. That's what dogs do. And pretty soon by the end by the end of the night, everyone on the bus ride, the last hour was all about explaining reasons why Jen had that dog in her. <laughs> and of course, high school boys have absolutely zero capacity to actually compliment someone from a sincere place in their heart, but this was their love language of choice that night. And very graciously, Jen embraced it. She knew that morale was at near, very near rock bottom for the trip, and so she wrote herself into the story. Right? She wasn't afraid, but she actually piped up, and when she got locked out of the building later that night, she just shrugged it off and said, you know what, you can't keep a dog out the kennel. <laughs> but all, all kidding aside, this ridiculous use of the word dog that we like to use today with an AW in there for some reason isn't exactly the word that Jesus had in mind or the use that Jesus had in mind when he called a first century foreign mother with a sick daughter a dog. When Jews in the first century would call a Gentile a dog, they usually had in mind the street dogs that would feed on trash and had mangled hair and maybe parts of their hair missing, the kind of dog that even today we would want to turn away from and run the other way, the kind of dog that we saw everywhere in the streets in Athens, and not a girl with a lot of pep in her step. But somewhere buried in these difficult words of Jesus, this mother latched on to some hint of a hidden hope that he was offering to her, and that's what we're gonna search for in this passage today. So no, no matter what our expectations are of Jesus that we're bringing in with us today, I think he's gonna surprise all of us with the subversive and terrible, but the good news that we are not deserving to come to the table but that he delights to feed the hungry and give us a seat. To understand this passage in the first place, we have to take a step back and, and go back to the beginning of chapter 7 in Mark. And Aaron talked about this a lot last week, but in the first 23 verses of the chapter, Jesus steps into the ring and goes 12 rounds with the Pharisees, arguing about the clean and the unclean laws that date all the way back to the, early, the earliest um, centuries of the Old Testament. And in these laws, God had given the people ways for them to make themselves outwardly clean to symbolize the inward cleanness that they needed for their sin. But by the time of the Jews, by the time of the scribes and the Pharisees and the time of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees had added so many additional laws on top of what God had already given them that they would kind of lost the whole point. Life was way more inconvenient because there were way more laws to follow, but Jesus pointed out that they had missed God's whole point to begin with. God wasn't so concerned about how much dirt you had on your hands, but the posture and the position of your sinful heart. And I don't want to rehash everything that Aaron said last week, but it's important for us to remember that Jesus has already made his position about clean and unclean very clear as he deals with a, a woman that many people would call unclean. But he says this. He said in, Mar- in Mark chapter 7, verse 20, he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from, for from within, out of the heart of man... "...come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, that all of these things come from within, and they defile a person." And then, according to Mark, Jesus drops the mic and leaves town. He actually leaves Israel for the first time and the only time in his whole ministry. He walks out of Israel and goes into Greek Gentile territory. But more than just taking a a quick vacation to the first century version of Myrtle Beach to get a vacation, Jesus is doing something a little bit more intentional here. Right on the heels of this big debate and argument about what is clean and what is unclean, Jesus says, you know what? Watch this. And he goes directly into an unclean land full of unclean people eating unclean food surrounded by unclean animals. So in that sense, maybe it very much was dirty Myrtle. But... In the midst of all this planning, I'm sorry, all this planning, as Jesus is trying to get, get rest and make his theological statement, he has a visitor in verse 25. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. In ancient Israel, rabbis would typically not even speak to women in public, And they definitely wouldn't um, speak to a a foreign woman, an unclean uh, Gentile who was at his knees, on her knees begging him at his feet, weeping maybe even on his feet for him to heal her daughter. And this was in many ways one of the most unlikely people that Jesus speaks to in his entire time on earth. It was scandalous for him, but it was also scandalous for her. She was barging into a stranger's house asking a man she didn't know who practiced a strange religion to maybe possibly heal her daughter who wasn't even there. This desperate mother is at the very end of her rope. So that's the scene set a little bit for us, and now we get to the, the rising action of the story as this poor mother begins to spar with Jesus, this battle of wits. And this is where we, I think, are quick to recoil a little bit and back away like the Pharisees. Verse 26, she, be, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. If you've been around Hope for very, for very long, you're probably wondering, well, hold on, where is the, the gentle and the lowly Jesus that I've heard so much about? If you're new to Christianity, you probably think, well, hey, at, at best, this Jesus guy is a jerk, and at worst, he's much closer to a, a racist or a bigot or a sexist, Right? And no matter what our first reaction is, it's jarring. And I think it's supposed to be. This doesn't sound like the Jesus we're used to seeing. It's not the Jesus we expect to see, but clearly he's up to something. So if you're, if you're a note taker, I try to put two little sub points in there for you. The offense of Jesus and the offer of Jesus, or the insult and the invitation. So first and most obviously, the offense. Jesus calls a woman a dog. Today, if you were to step foot outside on the rail trail for even a single minute, you will find three or four or five dogs being power-walked past you at all times. You may have had a dog, you may have seen a dog as you walked in from your parking spot this morning. We are surrounded by dogs in South End, and I mean that most literally as one is literally barking right outside (laughs) at this very moment, right? But in ancient Israel, dogs were considered unclean, filthy, dirty animals, They were scavengers. They were the hyenas from the Lion King who thrived on the flesh of dead animals and ate rotten things and carried diseases and fleas wherever they went. And in every sense of the word, they were unclean to the Jewish people. And as a result, dog was a common insult that Jewish people would hurl at their unclean Gentile neighbors from a safe distance. And this is probably something that this woman who grew up just outside of Israel Heard many times in her life as she interacted with Israelites, with Jewish people, regularly. So yes, on the surface, Jesus says something that is jarring, that grabs our attention, and that probably makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But if we see the woman's response, we see that she's not nearly as offended as we are. So what does she see that maybe we don't at first? Let's look back at verse 27 when Jesus responds to her. He says, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Most commentators believe that Jesus' response here is a, is a mini parable of sorts, a, a story with some kind of hidden meaning, a hidden lesson underneath the surface. A lot of the times when Jesus speaks in parables, um, the crowds don't really understand what's going on, and even his disciples, his closest friends and followers, they don't know what's going on, and so he has to explain it to them but somehow this woman seems to pick up on two hidden pieces of invitation that he offers. Firstly, this, this word dog that Jesus uses. In, in the Greek, there are two possible words that mean dog. One is the insult that, they, they would, that people would hurl at, at their Gentile neighbors, and that meant the, the scraggly, stray animals that lived in the streets. The animals, the, the dogs that lived off of trash and had mangy fur and were unclean in every sense of the way. This is the word that this woman would have been accustomed to being called all the time. But the second word for dog in the Greek language, and the one that Jesus actually uses, is much softer. It's the word that means a house pet, a dog that lives under the table, a dog that actually is loved by the family, so much so that some commentators even translate this word a puppy. And while the the Jewish uh, people in their households, they would not have had dogs inside their homes, for for this Gentile woman, this would have been a, a scene she was very familiar with, seeing a family sitting around a table, with a dog underneath licking up scraps. In the English language, it looks like Jesus is trashing and insulting this poor mom right away, but we have to read this with a softer tone. She isn't a lost stray carrying disease and meant to be kept at a safe distance, but a puppy, a beloved pet kept inside the home. And you may be thinking, well, hey, this sounds just like maybe slightly less offensive, but he's still calling her a dog in some sense. I think for this woman, this is actually a really important distinction because she hears a difference in what Jesus is saying to her compared to what everyone else has called her. And then the second thing that she picks up on is that Jesus used this word first. Maybe even gesturing to the table in the house where he was staying, he looks at at the table and says, "Think, think about the family, the father sitting at the head of the table, the children around and the children are going to eat first, but the implication is that the pet underneath the table is going to eat. They are going to get fed, but second. In Matthew's account of this story, um, he makes this even a little bit clearer when the first thing that Jesus says to this woman is that "I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." Right, so the, in our heads, the Gentiles are dogs, and the Israelites are maybe their children, but they're also lost sheep here, which carries its own levels of offense to some degree but Jesus is saying that he came first and foremost to find and feed and free the lost sheep of Israel. Remember, this is the only time in all of his ministry as an adult that Jesus actually leaves Israel to go out into Greek Gentile territory. But the moment he does leave, he begins to offer feast. He begins to offer a crumb of the feast that is to come, predicting what will will come to the Gentiles someday, Jesus' ministry to the children of Israel will eventually lead to his arrests, his torture, his excruciating execution in the capital city of Jerusalem. And The very children of God who God intended to be feasting and seated at his table forever for all eternity, those are the very people that celebrated the death of the Son of God. But it was his death and it was his resurrection three days later that changed everything for everyone The veil was torn that symbolized the separation was gone between God and his Jewish people, but also God and all peoples. And the last thing Jesus says before he ascends up into heaven to his disciples in Acts chapter one is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, close by, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. Jesus' first and primary ministry while he was on the earth was to the Jewish people in and around Jerusalem. But he didn't only come for them. 2,000 years later, in a different culture, speaking different languages, and all kinds of different preconceptions about religion and who Jesus is and who God is, we are the people benefiting from this promise of Jesus that the good news would go to the ends of the earth. But we are also the people that read the story and get most offended, or the people that read it and say, huh, and then we keep reading. We don't really ask what Jesus is doing. right? Throughout his ministry, he's spoken in all these parables, and no one has really understood, but this woman seems to see right through it. One commentator says this. He says that this woman appears to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does. Her pluck and persistence are a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus. His provision for the disciples of Israel will be abundant enough to provide for one such as herself. What an irony. Jesus speaks desperately, seeks desperately to teach his chosen disciples, yet they are dull and uncomprehending. Jesus is reluctant even to speak to a walk on pagan woman, and after one sentence, she understands his mission and receives his unambiguous commendation. How is this possible? The answer is that the woman is the first person in Mark to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. She answers Jesus from within the parable, that is, in the terms by which Jesus addresses her and indicates that she is the first person in the gospel to hear the word of Jesus to her. In other words, the most unlikely of all peoples to even talk to Jesus is the only one who actually gets it when he speaks directly to her. She hears the invitation of Jesus more loudly than she hears the insult. And that gives her the confidence to keep on begging, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This brings us to our next point, the super abundance and the satisfaction offered by Jesus. Because how many of us, if we were interacting with Jesus in this story, if we were the woman, wouldn't respond to Jesus and say, hold on, Jesus, how dare you? I'm a human being. I deserve a place at the table. I belong at the table with the other children. Like a a good American, how quick am I to assert my rights or the things that I think I deserve from God or from anyone, and how offended I get when they don't treat me the way I think I deserve to be treated. Yesterday, I I woke up, and my stomach had this huge knot in it, and I felt so much pain in this one spot, and I was kind of hunched over, and I was trying to literally walk around my neighborhood, trying to walk it out, see if that would loosen it up. I was too embarrassed to text Aaron. I didn't want to say, hey, good luck tomorrow, but it's on you now. But I was literally like hunched over, and the whole time, I wasn't asking God nicely, hey God, can you help me out here? But I was like bargaining with God, saying, God, don't you know how hard I've worked all week on this sermon for you? I'm doing this for you, God, and you do this to me? What's going on? And all along, I'm I'm not saying, God, I deserve this explicitly, but in my head, deep down, that's what I'm actually feeling. God, you are supposed to be healing me because I need to be doing this thing For you. None of us thinks that we're Dudley Dursley, the large and annoying and spoiled cousin of Harry Potter who thinks he's entitled to anything and everything that he wants. But somewhere dark and deep down within all of us, I think he lives down there somewhere, somewhere we don't like to talk about. There's a difference between the desires that we have and uh, thinking that we deserve something from God. And it's good for us to bring our desires to God and offer him the the things that are on our hearts and things that we are longing for. But as soon as those desires become things that I think I deserve from God, because I think I'm a good person, because I think I deserve heaven because I've done more good things than bad, because I think that I deserve his favor, deserve the perfect family, or I deserve a career change, or I deserve the house in the right neighborhood that is somehow bigger than the other person's next to me, as soon as I start using the language of deserving or thinking that God owes this to me, that's when I've gone astray. And when I hear Jesus tell this woman that she's not worthy to eat at the table, I get offended on her behalf. I want to stand up and say, Jesus, that's not right. You can't say that to a human being. But this woman responds entirely different. In the paraphrase from Tim Keller, this desperate woman realizes that Jesus isn't making a racist statement. He's not making a sexist statement, but he's making a theological one. He doesn't call her a Gentile because she's, um, he doesn't call her a dog because he's a Gentile and therefore unclean, but he calls her a dog. He's pointing out that she's unfit for the table because she is unclean as a sinner. And not only does this woman remarkably understand what Jesus is saying in the first place, when I think most of us just kind of glaze over it, but with even more humility, she responds Yes, Lord, you're right. I don't deserve a seat at the table and I am unworthy to eat beside you. I'm unfit for the mercy that I am asking for that only you can give, but I'm asking anyway. I know that I don't deserve it, but I know that I need it. So I am begging you, Jesus, just one crumb. She's humble enough to recognize and repent of her own sin and unworthiness when he, when he shows it to her. And she's humble enough to ask God anyway for a mercy she knows she doesn't deserve, because she's trusting in his goodness and not her own. And really, this is the heart of the gospel for all of us. The terrible news and the great news that we are not deserving on our own. We are unworthy to be children. We do not deserve a seat at the table. Even our very best good things that we can do, even in the name of Jesus, are not enough to earn crumbs that would fall from his table. But God is a God who delights to give and feed the hungry, to give and feed to the needy and those who know that they need God's mercy. Paul Tripp puts it like this. He says that we must never forget that we have earned neither our standing with the Lord nor our place in ministry. Every moment, Each moment he accepts us and each situation when he uses us result from one thing and one thing alone, grace. We have no right before God or others to self-assuredly stand with our hands out. We are independently entitled to nothing But his anger, only grace, entitles us to his accepting love. The smug expectation of blessing will cause you not only to question the appreciation of the people around you, but also the goodness of God. So often we want what we think we deserve from God, but if he actually gave us what we deserved, we'd get his wrath and his anger. So thank God he doesn't give us what we deserve. And this incredible woman, this mom who's cried all the tears she had left to cry, Ask for the one thing she knows she doesn't deserve. She doesn't demand rights, but she asks for the thing she knows is rightfully not her own. And this is the Christian life that we are invited into every single day. Not just one time on a a church retreat where we're feeling emotional, but every single morning to turn to Jesus and say, on my own, I am not enough. I am not worthy. But help me have the courage to admit that and help me have the courage to come and take a seat at your table. So this broken and faith-filled mother amazes Jesus. And in Matthew's, transla- Matthew's, Matthew's account of this story, Jesus' response is even more amazed than what he sounds like here. But he's blown away by this woman. She reminds him that even the dogs will eat a few crumbs. The word here for eat is the word that is used when Jesus feeds the 5,000 people and they, are, they all eat. And the word really means to be satisfied. She knows that even just a few crumbs of Jesus are enough to satisfy. But the even better news in the midst of all this is that God wants so much more than just to give you a few crumbs. Not because of anything that we do or anything that we deserve, but he sees you, and he knows you, and he invites the real, the messy you to come and have a seat at the table with him. When this mother threw herself at Jesus' feet and persistently begged him to heal her daughter, Jesus looked at her and saw her for who she really was, unworthy, but beloved. And all throughout the Gospels, this is a common theme, especially when Jesus interacts with women. In John 10, when Jesus finds Mary grieving the death of her brother Lazarus, he says that Jesus saw her and he wept with her. In John 4, when Jesus finds the woman at the well too ashamed to go out to the well with all the other women of the town. Jesus moves towards her. He talks to her. He sees her. He knows everything she's ever done. He sees right through the sin and the shame that clouds her entire life and he keeps moving towards her and talking to her. He doesn't ignore her life or her story or anything like that, but he sees her and she's known by him. And she leaves that conversation. She runs into the town and says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Being truly seen by Jesus is a scary thing. It's an exposing and vulnerable thing for him to come and look at us and see all of, our, all of our warts and our unworthiness. He sees all of our shortcomings, our pride, all the twisted motivations behind the things, even the good things that we do in the name of Jesus. But he still begs us, come and let me see you. I've managed to talk about dogs a lot tonight, and I haven't even mentioned the fact that I have a dog, which I feel like is a lot of restraint on my part. But I have a black lab named Huckleberry, and she's amazing. And um, she's about three years old, but she still has a lot of that puppy energy. And the two things in life that really bring out this energy more than anything else are a ball, which she will chase religiously and think about nothing else, and food, which the reason why she... Well, part of the reason why the vet says that I need to exercise her more is because I keep giving her the crumbs from my table and the scraps of food. But multiple times a day, I get to experience, after we play in the yard or go for a walk, what author John Green summarizes when he thinks about the way that his dog would come back in and lay down at his feet after playing. He says this about his dog. Then he would do something absolutely extraordinary. He would roll over onto his back and present his soft belly. I always marveled at the courage of that, his ability to be so absolutely vulnerable to us, to offer us the place that ribs won't protect, and trust that we weren't going to bite or stab him. It's hard to trust the world like that to show it your belly. I don't know exactly how to describe this, but there is something deep within me, something intensely fragile that is terrified of turning itself to the world. Maybe it feels like loving the beauty that surrounds us somehow disrespects the many horrors that also surround us. Or maybe I'm scared that if I show the world my belly, it will devour me. And so I wear the armor of cynicism and hide behind the great walls of irony and only glimpse beauty with my back turned to it through the clawed glass. It's hard for us to roll over and show our belly to the world because it might devour us. But sometimes I think it's even harder for us to roll over and show our belly to the God of the universe because we just don't know how he might change us, what he might see, what he might uncover, and the plans he might have for us but it is precisely in those moments when we do roll over and go belly up to God that he doesn't just reveal the deepest truths about ourselves, but he also reveals the deepest truths about himself and who he is and how he loves us. Jesus met this mother with an invitation veiled under a challenge. She first had to be seen by Jesus for who she really was, and then the moment she realizes and confesses that she is unfit and unworthy to sit at the table is the very moment God offers her to come and eat. All it took was a few crumbs of mercy to heal this woman's daughter, but Jesus is so eager to give us so much more than a few crumbs. And Tim Keller summarizes it like this. He says, on the cross, Jesus would identify with us totally. On the cross, the child of God was thrown away, cast away from the the table without a crumb so that those of us who are not children of God could be adopted and brought in. Put another way, the child had to become a dog so that we could become sons and daughters at the table. In just a minute here, we're gonna get to come to the Lord's table together, not because we deserve to come, not because of any worthiness within us, but because Jesus left his seat at the Father's table and came to rescue us and came to give, give his body and his blood so that we could come and have a seat at the table with him. And the feast that we're about to enjoy is just a glimpse and a foretaste, not just, not just looking backwards to what Jesus has done for us, but also looking forwards to the feast when heaven and the wedding feast of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who loves puppies. I thank you that you are a God that, you, that we can roll over on our backs and lift up our belly to you and that you do not bite or stab us. God, I pray that we would have the courage to do that, that we would be vulnerable with you and that we would trust you with our deepest sin, our deepest shame. Thank you that you love us, that your grace is more than we know. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.